Hello, folks. Welcome to the 31st episode of Myth, the first and last word, a bi-weekly program examining the myths of our world. I'm Echo Kane, an artist, musician, storyteller, ecologist, and educator interested in the socio-cultural historical interactions found within spirituality, myth, and religion. Twice a week, we attempt to better make sense of our rapidly changing and confusing modern world with the help of both ancient and contemporaneous myths from a wide variety of cultures. Today, we'll be looking at the myth, Mother of the Waters, from Haiti. So, join me today on a journey into the past and the present. A voyage of the soul to understand itself, where we find both the first written word and the mystery of the last word entwined through time. Welcome to the world of myth. of the waters is a very important style of myth. There are in fact hundreds of this myth found all throughout the world, though especially among African, indigenous American, and European communities, although there are of course some in Austroasiatic communities as well. Now it's difficult to find information on the specific origin of this myth uh, online due to the prevalence of the character Mami Wata or Mami Wati in the African diaspora and African religions in uh, especially West Africa. This particular myth is almost certainly derived from traditional myths from West Africa concerning this character. However, like many Haitian myths, this story mixes Yoruba and other West African religions with the unique experiences of Haitians revolution from slavery, and poverty caused by external and internal forces. It's also possible that Carib and other traditions from the peoples of the Caribbean are present in the myth, though I have no reference for their nature. The particular version of this archetypal myth comes to us from Suzanne Comer Sylvain, who recorded the tale in 1937. She is a particularly good source for the myth, as she herself was a Haitian anthropologist, one of the first, and would have been familiar with the contours of Haitian culture at the time. Now, I have already given the full extent of Haitian uh, history in a previous episode, actually episode two, so it's been quite a long time since we've talked about Haiti, so please do go and uh, refresh yourself on uh, the history of Haiti However, I will give a very, very brief reminder that Haiti was uh, very quickly colonized by uh, the French and Spanish, well, first the Spanish and then the French, who uh, brought over lots and lots of slaves after essentially killing off the indigenous population of Haiti, as it used to be called. That was the name of the island. The slavery that existed in Haiti was eventually overthrown through a number of different rebellions, but eventually there was one very serious rebellion that led to French forces leaving the island. 
Uh, eventually, French forces would return and uh, colonize it again, and then be pushed out again. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth in Haiti. However, the, at this point, native Haitian population, which included freed slaves at the time, were pretty quick to destroy the infrastructure of colonialism and of slavery, ultimately. Uh, creating for themselves a rather impoverished state, not only because of their destruction of a great deal of infrastructure, but also the external forces of the Europeans who kept Haiti as a kind of pariah state to extract debt and ultimately money from. This immediately brings to mind the exploitation of the fly, our previous myth from Vietnam as the European communities had no need for this money, really. It was just more money for them and a lack of money for the Haitians. Because of this, poverty is a major theme in Haitian mythology and Haitian story in general, as well as the uh, display of brother against sister, sister against sister, brother against brother, father against child, mother against child. The familial dynamics within Haiti were strained for quite a while because of money problems. As if you grew up in a family that did not have a lot of money, you are sure to know that sometimes you have arguments about the bills and it's very scary sometimes. So the reality is that Haiti experienced a lot of difficulties and is still experiencing difficulties today because of these historical factors. However, the debt has been paid at this point. Uh, it took 150 years total to pay off, which is an enormous amount of time. This history of poverty has led to a continued lack of infrastructure in Haiti and uh, the issues with, uh, I think, gang violence recently for the acquisition of oil. So we already see again this theme of thievery and taking from one's own people, right? as both a bad thing and a thing that you must do sometimes, which is a major theme in Haitian mythology. A lot of times, the mythology of the past, and even if it is even very far distant past, but especially recent past, carries to today. Stories take us on journeys, and those stories that we hear, they tell us how to live our lives. And so the people of Haiti have heard a lot of stories about being a thief and having to steal to stay alive and how that is something that you must do sometimes, but also how there are horrible things that people do to each other and we shouldn't do that. And so there is a push and pull within Haitian mythology. So it'll be interesting to see how this archetypal myth deals with these concepts, how it introduces them into the myth. So let's get right into it. Mother of the Waters There was once a young girl whose mother and father were both dead. As she had no way to get anything to eat, 
she had to hire herself out as a servant. She worked for a woman who lived by the river. But even though the woman had a daughter the same age as the servant girl, she showed no kindness to her. She beat her and spoke roughly to her and gave her only scraps to eat. One day, the woman sent the servant girl to the river to wash the silverware. As the girl was washing the silver, a tiny silver teaspoon slipped through her fingers and was carried away by the water. The servant girl reached for the teaspoon, but the current was moving too swiftly. She went back to the house and told her mistress what had happened. Find my teaspoon, the woman screamed, or never return to my house. The servant girl returned to the river and followed the stream. She walked all day without finding the teaspoon, and as the sun began to set in the sky, she started crying. An old woman sitting on a stone near the river's edge asked her why she was crying. I have dropped my mistress's silver teaspoon in the river. She says if I do not find it, I may not return. I will have no work. How will I eat? The old woman did not answer. Instead, she asked, Will you wash my back? Of course, the girl answered. She soaked and scrubbed the old woman's back, but the woman's back was rough and hard and covered with sores and thistles, and the girl's hands were soon bleeding. What is it? the woman asked. Uh, it is nothing, the girl answered. Let me see your hands, the old woman said. The girl held them out. The old woman spit on them. The cuts closed up, and the girl's hands were as they were before. Come home with me, the old woman said. And I will give you dinner. She led the girl to her home in the mountains and gave her banana pudding. Then they went to sleep. The next day after the girl had swept the yard, the woman gave her a bone, a grain of rice, and one bean and told her to make dinner. Grandmother, the girl said respectfully, please forgive me, but... I do not know how to make dinner with these. It is simple, the old woman said. Place them in a pot of boiling water, and dinner will soon be ready. The girl followed the woman's directions, and by noon a delicious-smelling casserole of rice, beans, and meat was steaming inside the pot. As they ate, the old woman told the girl, I will be going out. In a few hours, a wild cat will come and beg for food. Do not give it any food. Beat it with my stick. A few hours after the old woman left, the girl heard a mewing outside the door. The cat was so thin and hungry, the girl did not have the heart to hit it. 
She brought it a saucer of milk and watched it eat. After a while, the cat went away. A short time later, the old woman returned. She was pleased with the girl, so the servant girl stayed on with the old woman. The girl helped her, and the old woman always gave her enough to eat. Then, after several months, the old woman told her it was time for her to return to her mistress. Yes, said the girl, but how can I go back without the silver teaspoon? Walk down the road, the old woman said. When you come to the first crossroads, you will see a pile of eggs lying on some straw. The larger ones will call out, take me, take me. Take one of the smaller eggs and break it open at the next crossroads. The servant girl thanked the old woman and set out. At the first crossroads, she saw the pile of eggs. The larger ones cried, Take me! Take me! The girl chose the smallest egg instead, and when she cracked it open at the next crossroads, out came a tiny box, which grew and grew until it filled her arms. The girl opened it, and inside were forks and knives and spoons, all of them made of silver. The woman and her daughter were so jealous when they saw the servant girl's box of silverware that they made her tell the story of how she had gotten it three times. Then, the very next morning, the mother sent her own daughter down to the river to wash the silverware. The girl didn't even bother to wash the silverware. She simply threw the small coffee teaspoon into the river and went home. I have lost the coffee spoon, the girl declared. Then go and find it, the mother said knowingly. And do not come home until you do. The daughter walked alongside the river all day. Then, toward evening, she saw the old woman sitting on a stone. Immediately... She began to cry. Why are you crying? The old woman asked. Oh, oh, I have lost my mother's silver spoon. She says I may not go home unless I find it. What shall I do? Will you wash my back? The woman asked. The girl took the soap and began to wash the woman's back when the thistles on the woman's back cut her hands. Oh, oh, she cried. What is it? asked the woman. It's your filthy rotting back. It cut my hands and they are bleeding. The old woman took the girl's hands and spit on them and they were healed. Then she brought her to her home in the mountains and fed her supper. The next morning, the old woman gave the girl a bone, a grain of rice, and one bean, and told her to make dinner. With this garbage? said the girl. What a sorry tongue you have, the woman answered. I only hope you are not as nasty as your words. Place what I have given you in a pot of boiling water, and dinner will soon be ready. At noon, the pot was filled with rice and beans and meat. 
They ate their meal, and the old woman said, I am going out. In a few hours, a wild cat will come and beg for food. Do not give it any food. Beat it with my stick. Some time after the old woman left, the girl heard a mewing outside. She grabbed the old woman's stick and rushed for the cat. She hit it and hit it and hit it and hit it until she broke one of its legs. Much later that evening, the old woman returned. She was leaning on a cane and limping, for one of her legs was broken. The next morning, she told the girl, You must leave my house today. You will not learn, and I cannot help you anymore. But I will not go home without my silverware, the girl insisted. Then I shall give you one last piece of advice. At the next crossroads, you will find a pile of eggs lying on some straw. The larger ones will call out, take me, take me. Choose one of the smaller eggs and break it open at the next crossroads. The girl ran out of the house as quick as she could and down the road. When she came to the first crossroads, the larger eggs called out, Take me! Take me! I am not foolish, said the girl. If an egg speaks to me, I will listen. If it is a large one, all the better. She chose the largest egg and broke it open at the next crossroads. Out came all kinds of lizards, goblins, demons, and devils, and ate the girl up. Hmm. I think it's very interesting that the old woman is both a helper and a trickster in this story. Let's begin at the beginning, though. We'll get to the old woman in just a moment, but I think it's important to look at the very beginning of this myth because it represents a realness. A lot of times you'll see this sort of realness at the beginning and end of myths. A message at the end, a moral perhaps, or an idea about the larger world that we can make sense of. An ideological idea a lot of times. We haven't talked about that as much uh, in the last few episodes, but if you'll remember that's an idea uh, that is found in the natural world or the human world that is then translated into myth for the transmission to later generations. In the case of this myth, we see an orphaning at the beginning of this myth. The servant girl, as she has no other name, uh, does not have any parents. She has no one to support her, and so she must support herself. It's clear that this is a failure of government a failure of society. The world has failed this girl, and her mistress fails her as well, asking too much of her, uh, ousting her when she has lost but a single piece of silver. This would have been the experience of a number of children in Haiti who probably had uh, parents who dealt with very, very difficult circumstances in life, either through poverty or, uh, if a little earlier, slavery. This was not an easy place to live, and still is not. 
And so orphaning is a little more common there than some other places. The child labor that we see as well is another failure. It's clear that this girl should not be doing this kind of work, having to do household chores all the time for a mistress, someone who does not have an explicit job even within the text of the story, although who knows what this mistress does. But then we see an opposite. The mistress is a yelling force, someone who does not care about the plight of this young girl. But the mother of the waters, the titular character, the old woman, does. The old ways care about this poor girl. They are a rough thing, a natural thing, something that can only be found when one is in a troublesome situation. A fairy godmother, if you will. I really believe that Cinderella is one, a version of this kind of story. We might tell Cinderella eventually on here as well, because it's part of Grimm's fairy tales and uh, German mythology. However, we have not yet. The idea of transitioning from a force of great evil, of money, of wealth, of imposition of labor to somebody who, though asks for labor, gives freely. There is a reciprocal nature to the way of the mother of the waters. She gives when there is not a reason to give. She asks only for simple services. The cooking of a meal, which also benefits the girl, by the way. The uh, looking over of the house while she is gone. She does ask, interestingly, for the beating of the cat, which the girl, at least the servant girl, does not do. And that's something I really want to delve into, is why does she refuse this? And why does the old woman trick in this way? Well, I think it's a test. It's a way to see if a person is a good person or if they just follow orders with no rhyme or reason, just for their own benefit. The girl has followed the woman's directions quite well, but the old woman is probably questioning is this person a good person? Do I want to be around them for longer? I think that we conduct these tests ourselves on a regular basis, almost subconsciously. When we come upon a situation with a friend, especially a new friend or perhaps a romantic interest, we often look at how they respond. Sometimes we are disgusted with their response and we might not hang out with them as much anymore. Or we might be really uh, taken aback and like, wow, I wouldn't have even approached a situation in that way. And we become closer to them in that, in that way. To see great opening, I think, is, is the point of this, is that this girl is compassionate. She's unwilling to beat a cat who is starving because she sees the humanity in that cat, just as she saw the humanity in the mother of the waters in a way that the rich girl cannot. And it is very tied to monetary wealth here. The idea that the mistress's daughter, though doing the exact same things as the servant girl, approaches them in a very different intention. She says, which is honestly one of the funniest lines in the story, this garbage, when uh, <laughs> referring to the food. Whereas the servant girl is surprised at the lack of abundance with the food, but does not take issue with the fact that it is food. She does not uh, want any luxury. 
She just wants some form of abundance in her food so that she can eat. That's normal. That's expected. The rich girl in this instance is obsessed with uh, luxury, right? She is interested not really in helping the mother of the waters, of just enjoying a meal. She is interested in enjoying a meal beyond, in a transcendental form. This is often uh, something I actually take issue in holy texts, is the raising of the transcendental experience above the mundane one. Because I believe that the mundane experiences of everyday life are just as transcendental as those quote-unquote transcendental experiences. Why is it that we apply certain uh, incredible tastes to certain foods, whereas others we say are boring? Today I had some noodles. I did not put very much on those noodles. I put some salt on them and some pepper. But I did not add very much to them. But I still enjoyed those noodles. But most people would say, oh, but they are just noodles. You could not have enjoyed those noodles. They are nothing. They are just to say to you. But no, I enjoyed those noodles because I chose to enjoy them. And it is an intentional choice. Some of it is based on our experience in life, but some of it is internal, right? We have the ability to not beat the cat. <laughs> I mean, think about how many times it says, and hits, when the uh, rich girl hits the cat. She, she, it says, she hit and hit and hit and hit four times. She hits the cat to break the leg. She could have stopped after one, seeing that the cat did not need to be beat. I mean, my goodness. The woman just said, hit it with the stick, beat it away. Was the cat really going to come back after being hit once? No, the rich girl is unaware of that compassion that the servant girl feel, feel, feels towards this cat. And this is the same thing that the mistress feels to the servant girl. If somebody had asked the mistress to beat the servant girl away from her food, do you think that she would have done it? I think so. Because this representation is showing how people understand the impoverished, the beggar, the homeless person. That is what this story is showing. It is demonstrating to the audience that we should not beat away those that are asking for food, but give, even if it is just a single bean, a few pieces of rice, whatever else, a banana pudding. We should give liberally if we have the ability to. And I really believe that. Now there's a whole big discussion to be had about charity and the ways in which people give in the modern day that I just don't want to get into right now because it really is a very complex subject that is very hard to pass judgment on. There are good charities, there are bad charities. There is a lot to say against charity. There's a lot to say for charity. So we aren't going to get into that. But nonetheless, we should give liberally if we are capable. And that goes to uh, activists as well, to movements that will better people's lives, that are trying to better everyone's lives through the change, through a change in a governmental structure or a, an institution or a reform, something that will change people's actual lives. Now, I do think it's interesting that this old woman is represented so loosely here. She is just someone who tells these, these girls what to do. She it does not really have any characterization beyond that being rough and old. And it is kind of lacking in that. I, I do wish there was a little bit more of a description of her character, 
Who is this old woman? Well, she is in a way the mother goddess, the mother of all waters, the mother of flow, the mother of getting along when there is little. The roughness of her skin and the use of spit and these natural elements shows that we are natural beings, that all of our bodily processes are natural, that we should not hide ourselves away. There is no shame in a rough back. There is no shame in uh, spit if it is used to heal, if it is used for good things. Uh, there is not a representation of spit used poorly in this myth, but it certainly can be. The final metaphor that I want to unpack in this story is the eggs. Large eggs and small eggs. This reminds me of a biological concept that most people are unfamiliar with. Did you know that most of the fruits and vegetables that we eat today are selectively bred and thus genetically modified, not through any kind of genetic engineering, but rather the slow breeding of uh, different plants together over, a, over centuries? And guess what? Most of these vegetables and fruits have been bred to be bigger under the strange belief that larger fruits and vegetables are better for humans. But this is not the case. It actually strips the nutrients from these fruits and vegetables and uh, increases their water content, makes them less tasty. Tomatoes during the 1700s mostly looked like cherry tomatoes and grape tomatoes. The largest you might have seen were those sort of like heirloom tomato size, right? Not very large. And they were much tastier for it because all of that acid that is in tomatoes, all of those good flavors and the sweetness too, were co uh, condensed into a smaller form. I mean, it makes a lot of sense when we talk about it in this way. And it reminds me of this. A large egg is really no better than a small egg, right? They, they are still an egg. And the uh, servant girl knows this. She has probably had to survive off of one egg at one point, a small egg, and knows how important a small egg can be. And so she does not fixate on the large eggs that are at the crossroads. And so she is given the gift. The rich girl, on the other hand, is unwilling to see the reality of food. She is unwilling to recognize the abundance that she has had in her life. She can only see that one thing looks more scarce than the other, instead of recognizing that both contain abundance. So she chooses the large egg, going against the mother of the water's words. And thus, she opens Pandora's box. She releases goblins and demons and devils, right? Everything to kill her, <laughs> rip her apart. This is the imagined fate of the rich in the afterlife, almost. The fate of those who do not see the reality of the world, see the pain that those impoverished go through, do not listen to their elders, uh, do not listen to their mentors, rather. Elders are not necessarily always correct, but if you really respect someone who's old, you should listen to them, because they do have more life experience than you. Of course, there's lots of old people who are very ignorant and arrogant and think that they know very, very much for being alive for 60 years or some such. The truth is, is that no human knows very much. I don't know very much, <laughs> I, and I'm not quite that old yet, but you know, I don't think I will know very much when I'm 70 years old. I don't think anybody knows all that much. I think that that's an important thing to recognize 
in our lives, because it opens up the ability to understand things in a more myriad set of understandings. Because if you make sense of the fact that you know very little, you can start listening to other people, and you recognize that they know way more than you, because you just haven't studied those things that they have studied. That's not to say that if you have seen something and studied something, you shouldn't push back against people that say one thing that you know is wrong. Certainly, we should push back against those we know say something wrong. But at the same time, we should also listen to those that have more life experience. It's a give and take, right? We have to do both. And it is hard sometimes, especially when a... It's hard for me to say some of these things about, you know, respecting your elders when so many older people today, at least in America, say the worst things. They want death for people like me. And truly, it's very sad. They don't recognize climate change. They don't recognize a lot of things. That's not, that's not to say that there are people who are very cool that are old, right? It's a give and take, just as I said. And it's a give and take in poverty and richness as well, right? The rich rely on the poor, actually more so than the poor rely on the rich, as it were. The poor often have to fend for themselves. The impoverished often have no other recourse than to labor. That is what this girl, this poor orphan servant girl, has to deal with, to eat. Because the world has failed her, and so she must make it in the world. She must rely on only herself. But the rich? Why, the rich rely on everybody. They rely on servants like this girl. They rely on their children. They rely on the systems that benefit them. And so I ask you, rich people, people who really are really rich, and who are probably not listening to this podcast, but if you know a rich person, maybe think about this. And when I say rich, I mean really rich, like millionaire, you know, or like hundred, hun some hundred thousands in the savings kind of air. How many people, how well would you have done if your parents hadn't done well? If you hadn't had access to certain things in your life? If you hadn't met certain people? If you didn't have certain laws that benefited you in our society? What would your life be like if you had been an orphan when you were a child? What would your life have been like if you had had no money when you were a child? What would your life have been like if you had no food when you were a child? Think about that for a moment. Think about the pain of that. And then forget about it because that's not where you are right now. You have the ability to change people's lives right now because there are children out there who are dealing with that. And if you are a millionaire or billionaire listening to this, please give away your money. <laughs> I'm serious. Because it will help people. And guess what? You are in a position where you can build back up that money, but most people are not in that position. The distribution of wealth to many people must happen for people to get better, for society to heal, for corporations to not run everybody's lives. Ultimately, a lot of millionaires and billionaires are interested in that not happening. So it's very hard to get them to redistribute their wealth. Even if they think that they are doing well through charity and all sorts of other uh, philanthropic uh, activities. You know, Bill Gates recently announced that he was going to give away billions of dollars. And I say, great, that's wonderful, but he's giving it mostly to his foundation. And that's still in his own hands, let's be real here. That's still kind of close to him even if it's going to other people. There needs to be some kind of way for these billionaires and millionaires to directly give money to the populace, to redistribute that wealth in a major, real way. 
We have no mother of the waters to save us in the modern day. There is no hermit that lives out in the woods that will feed us with a single grain and a single bean that will make great feasts. That doesn't exist. And so we must make do with what we have. We must labor under the mistress. We must labor when we have no food. We must labor when we have no money. This is the reality of life in the modern day and the reality of life for most of human history under imperial rule, under capitalist rule. And we today are at a great time of change because people are starting to recognize around the world that these systems of governance don't help the most people. And this has already happened many times. We have recognized this and recognized this and then forgotten it. It seems that people are in a great mist that never seems to coalesce into a cloud to rain. The rain never comes. We are in an internal drought, a great wasteland that we must navigate to find tiny beetles that we eat in the sand. You've been listening to Myth, the first and last word with Echo Kane. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can support the show and my work by continuing to listen, following the show wherever you get your podcasts, engaging in discussion within the comments, and sharing this podcast everywhere on the internet. I also compose, record, and produce my own music, which you can find on Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you stream music. If you are interested in my written or visual work, you can find my full artist profile on www.echocane.com. That's www.echocain.com. Next episode, we'll be returning to the Bhagavad Gita with Chapter 4. I'm very excited to talk once again about a holy text, as it has been quite a while, and we've been focusing mainly on smaller myths for a little bit here. Again, if you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show, please compose one and only one email to theechocane at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And now, for the last word. Today's last word is... Compassion.